0: Psalm 40, let me pray that our hearts might be centered on the Lord this morning. God, we thank you for your love and mercy towards us this morning, especially through your son Jesus. And our prayer is this morning, God, as we look at your word, that you would move in our hearts to trust you more, to rest in the, the mercy you have for us. And God, open our eyes to the glory of your redemption and the glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen psalm 40 we're going to end up reading the whole thing including the section that pat also read but i wanted to just by way of illustration give you a, a sense of where we're going a sommelier a sommelier and fine dining restaurants a sommelier is somebody who helps you choose which wine to drink with your meal the sommelier helps you choose the most expensive wine no i'm kidding Sommelier, what he does is he is supposed to know, he's an expert, he's supposed to know, he or she is supposed to know which wine pairs properly with the meal that you're about to consume. And you don't just roll in and apply to be a sommelier because you happen to have a box of wine on your counter. It requires intense training. Intense training, not only in knowledge and information, but developing a very precise sense of taste and palate. In the certification is extraordinarily intense. Most Somaliers take more than one effort to pass their certification, which is a blind certification. You're presented with dozens of vintages and you're required to, by taste alone, identify age and place of growth for all of the varieties of grapes and wines that you taste. So it's, it's a person who has, through intense training, and you're saying, well, how hard is that? The training is drinking lots of wine. Okay. <laughs> It's intense that they have to have a very precise sense of knowledge, of history, and of soil, and the vintages, and a palate that is, is highly trained. And so this person is through expertise able to evaluate what is really, really good and what is not really, really good. And this requires some work and some effort. And what Psalm 40 wants us to do is to develop our palate for what is really, really good. And in order to do that, the first step is recognizing that we don't have a very well-developed palate; That we settle for things that aren't as good as they are. And what we discover through looking at Psalm 40 is when we discover how good God is, we are moved to communicate what God is like to others. And that's why the title of the message today is News Worth Sharing. When we're able to, by God's grace, develop our understanding of how good God is, it's going to move us to share what He's like to others. And I just want to highlight two areas that we're going to look at: what is good about God. News we're sharing; these two things we're going to highlight as we work our way through Psalm 40. Number one, we're going to look at how much God blesses. This is in verses one through five of Psalm 40. We're going to try and understand through the Word of God how much. God blesses. Then for the balance of the Psalm, Psalm 6 through 17, we're going to look at some specifics of how great God is. And if we can understand properly what the Bible teaches us about what God does and how He blesses and who He is, what He is like, when we recognize that, we are going to be moved to communicate this to others because we're going to recognize how good this is. So this becomes news worth sharing. Psalm 40, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Let me read them verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. News worth sharing sharing how much God blesses. There was a grocery store in town that I used to go to, or go to from time to time, and when you checked out your items, when first of all, you can tell how long ago this was, there was a person that checked out instead of me checking out on my own, but the person would, you would ring up your groceries, and then when you got up to the person who's ringing up your groceries, you would scan in your club card. You You know what I'm talking about, the club card? Uh, so whether it be Safeway or Albertsons or, or whatever, you scan the card because this card um, it tells them that you ought to get a discount, right? It means this item, if you're a club card member, uh, this item will be less expensive. So they had trained their cashiers that after you checked out and you scanned your club card, they would hand you the receipt and they would tell you how much you saved. Did you ever had this happen? So some of you go through and scan, they hand me the receipt. Uh, Mr. Spires, you saved 30 cents today. <laughs> wow, well, hold, hit the brakes on that. Are you serious? Well, okay. I'm going to Maui. Well, not anymore, but I'm going, to, you know, I'm going. I saved 30 cents. What, you know, the person was just doing their job. But I, I, I mean, really, at that point, it wouldn't be almost better just sort of like, maybe better luck next time. <laughs> Buy some different things, pay attention to the postings or whatever. It's not a big deal, but, but they want to tell me, you saved 30 cents today. Okay, great. I didn't go home. It's like, Aaron, you won't believe what happened. I saved 30 cents at the store. I mean, no one would care, would they? I mean, when I bring it up, it's almost silly that I even mention it. But think of another case. Maybe somebody is out driving their car, and they're deep in the woods. This is, of course, hunting season, so this is going to happen to some of us. And we get stranded. We get lost. Why are we lost? Because I know where I'm going. I've been here a million times. I don't need a map or a compass. And so now, all of a sudden, we're stranded, and we're lost, and... And we're a little bit concerned for our well-being. But finally, we are rescued. Search and rescue shows up. And at great risk to themselves and expense to themselves, they rescue you from imminent danger. Is that a story worth telling? Yeah, you'll probably tell that story. You won't believe what happened one year when I was out hunting. I got lost and I thought for sure that was the end of me. But I got found. I mean, you're going to share that story. Now, which of those two people have a better story? I mean, this guy tells his hunting story and somebody, yeah, but you know, I saved 30 cents. I mean, no one cares. And who would be more appreciative of what was saved? It's the person, of course, who was saved. So what we have to recognize in Psalm 40, and we're also going to look elsewhere in the book of Luke, is God saves us from the most desperate of situations. We have to understand that what the Bible tells us is God saves us from the most desperate of situations. There are no more desperate situations than the one that God saves us from. That is sin, and what sins brings, which is death. The more we realize and recognize what God has saved us from, the more we will see ourselves as blessed. That's the the equation that the Psalm gives us. The more we recognize what God has saved us from, the more we will see ourselves as blessed. So before we jump into Psalm 40 in depth, let's look over at Luke chapter 7. You can turn there in your copy of Scripture if you want. It won't be up on the screen. Psalm, I should say Luke 7, verse 36. This is a passage you're well familiar with. Jesus was invited to eat at a Pharisee's house. His name was Simon. And he was reclining at the table and... A woman who was a sinner. How do we know she was a sinner? She had a reputation as a sinner. It was known of her that she was one who sinned in ways in which people preferred others don't sin. See, there's some sins we don't mind. And there's other sins we, don't, we do mind. And she sinned in ways in which the community didn't like. And so she was branded with this reputation as a sinner. And while Jesus was reclining at this Pharisee's house, she brought with her like an alabaster flask, you know, as we all have. She stood behind Jesus. He's reclining. You you lean on your shoulder and your feet are out behind you. And while they're reclining at the table, because most of these meals at Pharisee's houses were public events. People would come and listen to the conversations. While this was happening, she's at his feet weeping. She's crying. So she's sobbing. She's sobbing so much, in fact, that her tears are falling on his feet. This is a lot of, of crying. And what she's doing is she is... Uh, wiping the tears off of his feet with her hair. So she's, she's crying and her tears are falling on his feet. And then she's wiping his feet off uh, with, her, with her hair. And she was, she was also kissing his feet. And then she took this alabaster jar of ointment and she was anointing uh, his feet. And the Pharisee, of course, saw this happening and he felt it was, you know, obviously it's a little bit strange, but also with her reputation... There was this association. He would have assumed Jesus as a religious teacher who was calling people to seek the kingdom of God would recognize that this association with sort of a known sinner could potentially sort of ruin his reputation. That there was this sense that he shouldn't be associated with a known sinner and that her making physical contact with this person spoke to some degree about Jesus' reputation. That maybe Jesus in, in failing to stop this It revealed something about his own reputation. If he allowed this known sinner to act in such really strange ways and physical ways, it might be somewhat offensive ways. I mean, what does this tell us about Jesus? And the Pharisee was sort of mulling this over, and he said, if this guy were a prophet, this guy really knew what he was doing, he'd know what kind of woman this is because she is a sinner. So, Jesus, of course, told him a a brief parable. You're probably familiar with this parable, but I'm going to um, remind you of it again. Verse 41 of Luke 7. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he, that is the moneylender, canceled the debt of both. Which one of the debtors will love The moneylender more, the guy who got forgiven fifty denarii, or the one who got forgiven five hundred denarii. Which one? Yeah, the one who got forgiven more. And that's what the Pharisees said. So you guys are good. You're in good company, just like Pharisees. (laughs) Good for you. Jesus, though, said you have judged correctly. And he says, look at this woman. I entered the house. You gave me no water for my feet. So what do we know about Jesus' feet? Is this woman is kissing them? They're dirty. She, though, has not stopped wetting my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss, yet she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with ointment. So Jesus says, you did not extend to me the most basic, the most basic of uh, hospitality. what, What would have been expected for the most routine of things. So for Jesus not to have received these, the the Pharisee was clearly communicating to, to Jesus that the rabbi felt he did not owe Jesus any sense of hospitality. And so Jesus is reminding Simon of, I know what you think of me. You think I'm down here and you're up here. She, on the other hand, what does she think of Jesus? Jesus is up here. And so what he's saying is, It's because she has been forgiven of of more. But here's the thing we have to recognize of this. Who sinned more, the woman or the Pharisee? They're the same. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. Jesus' point isn't the bigger sinner feels more uh, gratitude. It's the one who sees themselves for who they are. He's saying the woman actually recognizes she's a sinner. Simon does not recognize it. He is, though. It's not that he has sinned less, he's just blind to his own situation. The woman, on the other hand, she sees her need, so she sees her Savior. See, both of them were lost. Both of them were in the woods and being rescued. The woman says, I have been saved from death. Simon says, I saved 30 cents at the grocery store. That's where he said. That's what it is. I didn't get saved from much had he put his faith in Jesus. So the woman's perspective on herself and her need and the woman's perspective on Jesus is what fueled her behavior. Since she saw her sin as so great and her Savior as so gracious, what it did is it moved her to worship. Worship. Do you see that? That's the connection Jesus is making. Her worship is based on her seeing herself as what? A sinner. And is seeing Jesus as what? Someone who saves her from the depths of her sin, and that moves her to worship because she can see the need and what she has been forgiven from. She is not worshiping artificially. she's worshiping from the place she is. This is what Psalm 40 is getting at. So let's pick this up in... Verses 1 through 3, excuse me, of Psalm 40. Look at what David is saying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. David sees his situation here as a desperate situation situation. Now, if you look down at verse 12, the second part of verse 12 in Psalm 40, if you're in your copy of the scripture, you can scan down or over to the next column, next page. David says this, evils have, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. Look, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So what is David saying he has been saved from out of the miry bog? His own sin. He includes in that a lot of external problems he is facing. But a major portion of this for David, this miry bog he is in, is not just a bad run of luck. It's not just the Philistines. It's not just King Saul chasing him. He is saying, I'm in a pit of my own making. I'm in a pit of my own making. My iniquities have overtaken me. He's been thrown into a miry bog, and now God is having to to lift him out. I mean, there's a great picture of this. Did you see this story? I don't know if you saw this, but a, a guy just this week escaped from Oregon State Hospital. He was a, a prisoner in the Oregon State Penitentiary System and he escaped from the hospital. And he, I, I shouldn't laugh, but he wrecked his car in Portland in a pond. And they found him because somebody called in and said, there is a guy stuck in the mud. Not in a car. He had gotten out of the car. He was stuck in the mud up to his armpits. He couldn't get out couldn't get, now you're Googling it, it's fine, I don't care, it's a funny story. So they had to go out, and they had to, they're using the ladder on a big, uh, what are those, a fire truck, and they had to, to pull him out of the mud, he gave him a false name, got to the hospital, and the nurse said, wait, I don't know this guy, I so I'm on the news, and they rearrested him. <laughs> so literally like David, his sin got him into a miry bog. It's a great story. And you think I'm making it up, I'm not, it's hilarious. I mean, obviously I feel bad for him, and hope he finds mercy. This is what David is saying. How much has God blessed? First blessing David is trying to outline here is this. He is saying, I was in a miry bog, God put me out. Did David get himself out? No, he prayed to the Lord, God put him out and put his feet on a rock, solid rock. No longer the squishy ground of the bog, he is now on the solid rock of the Lord who brings him blessing. And how does David respond when he recognizes God has brought him out of his own muck, his own sin. How does he respond? The same way that woman did in Luke. Look, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So what David is saying, he has moved to worship, not because he's so amazing. He's moved to worship because he's so not amazing and God saved him anyway. That's that's what is moving David to worship. God pulled him out of the mire of his own rebellion. And he said, I've got to worship God who would do this for someone like like me. David sees his own situation as a desperate one. He couldn't escape it on his own. And the rescue plan came from God. God saves him and he is is brought to worship. Look at verse 4, Psalm 40. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud to those who go astray After a lie. So what he is saying here is blessing is found in trusting the Lord In depending on the Lord and then he contrasts that with the proud Blessed are those who do not turn to the proud. What is someone who is proud? We are proud when we don't have to depend on anybody, which is what we want what we prefer we prefer not to depend on anybody. we got a self-made person. I can handle my business. We want to handle our, our own affairs in our life and feel like we have accomplished something. The problem is that also extends over into our life with God. We don't want to depend on anybody to have relationship with God. We want to be the one who has established that. I'm good enough, so God brought me in. And David has said, don't be led astray. Have a life of dependence on the Lord. We wake up in the morning, why do I have a relationship with God? Because I trust God is going to keep me and he's going to hold me. Not because I'm good enough, not because I'm smart enough, not because I make good decisions or I behaved well yesterday. I am blessed because I wake up in the morning and say, I still trust you God to keep me close. And that's what David was saying. Don't depend, don't follow after the proud who will try to convince you. It's not about trust, it's about self-reliance. Self-reliance will get you nowhere in the kingdom of God. Reliance on God is what brings blessing in the kingdom of God. Blessing is found in depending on the Lord. How can you avoid going astray in your life with God? Avoid being self-reliant. Avoid being self-reliant or depending on those who are arrogant in that way. Look at what he says at the second part of, uh, or look at what he says in verse 5, I should say. God, you have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So when we trust the Lord, we recognize that God makes our relationship with him whole because he saves us from the mess of our own sin, and the result is we are moved to share that with others. That's what he says. I will proclaim and tell of... All the works of God. So we're moved to communicate to others. Look, God has blessed me. Because he has brought about forgiveness in my life because I depended on him. God can provide for us spiritually better than we can provide for ourselves. This is what a life of dependence does. God's generosity is worth talking about. Now, I I need to mention one thing before we move on to the second part of the psalm. It's longer, so I wanted to get to it because I want to be done before two. What was the woman known for? What was her reputation? Sinner. So that's why it made sense why she was so thankful to the Lord. So the trick, is here's the challenge, and we don't like this. But if we're going to communicate the goodness of God, what does that mean must be true about us? That means we have to be sinners. See, we want to communicate the goodness of God because we did... Uh, We we went to church a lot. We gave lots of money. We read our Bible a lot. We memorized the book of uh, Philemon because it's the shortest one. And so, therefore, God has blessed me. That's why we like to talk about God's blessing because we followed God's program. Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Look, I did the things God's way, and so, therefore, God has blessed me. Right? Who else did that? Pharisees. That's what Pharisees did when, around Jesus. No, look, Jesus. I strained out a gnat from my, from my grain, and uh, I devoted this money to the Lord, and I walk around with my eyes closed so that I don't look at somebody and accidentally lust after them. They called them bleeding Pharisees because they were always running into things. No, I'm serious. I'm not making this up. It'd be, it wouldn't be funny if, if I made it up. But, you know, and so I've done all these things. So therefore... God has blessed me. Because doesn't that sound great? God has blessed me. Why? Because I'm amazing. The woman says, God has blessed me. Why? Because God forgave a sinner like me. The problem is, it is impossible to experience the blessing God is describing in Psalm 41 through 5 if we refuse to admit we're in a miry bog. You'll never experience it. As long as your sins are miniature pg sins and you refuse to admit the reality of your own heart god's blessing will always seem lame but when you're willing to grapple with the reality of what actually is going on in your heart and life you will look at god and say i can't believe you would save someone like me It has nothing to do with whether or not you're a big sinner or not all of us the bible says what all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god and the wages of sin Is death. To experience the blessing of God, it's necessary for us to recognize how much we need God's forgiveness. And this is a significant challenge. I would suggest this is a significant challenge to those of us who are raised in the church. Because we were taught the way to get God to be nice to you is to be a good little Christian. And it turns out the way to get God to be nice to you is to be what? A sinner. I mean, I'm just, that's what the Bible says, doesn't it? I can't remember. Now you're looking at me, and some of you are arguing with me. <laughs> While we were still earning our way to heaven. No, it doesn't say it. While we were still sinners. I mean, we memorized this verse in Awana. But, but it didn't stick, did it? Because we are convinced. Now I'm off topic, but here we go. We're convinced. You go to work, and something goes terrible. Anybody ever have that happen? You go to work, something goes terrible. As a Christian, what's the first thing you do? I knew it. I did that thing on Saturday, I knew it. God's on me. Ever done, have you ever done it? Yes. Should I ask for a show of hands, come on. <laughs> We've all done it. You say, yeah, that do it? No, God, you, you owe me. You had to, I blew it on Saturday. I said a naughty word, and not one of the acceptable Christian naughty words. <laughs> and so God, yeah, you had to come upside my head. No, that's you. and. What's the problem with that thinking? There's just one little problem with that thinking. What is it? It's heresy. You don't get to pay for your sin. That's Jesus' job. You don't get that glory. It's offensive to your Savior to say you get to pay any of your sin. That's Jesus' job. That's his glory. He is glorified in us when we do something like this. We blow it on Saturday. Why? Because it's Saturday. Monday... We give glory to God because He blesses us, what? Anyway. That's what He does. That's what Psalm 40 is saying. God, wait, I'm in a miry bog and you're going to bless me? And God says, yeah, that's how I roll. And when you recognize that's what God is doing, what do you do? You tell people. Can you, I got a promotion today. It's incredible because of how I was on Saturday. I shouldn't have got the promotion. Let me tell you about it. People say, please stop talking about your sin. But we don't want to do that because polite Christians don't talk about their sin. So since polite Christians don't talk about their sin, what does that mean? God's blessing is lame. That's, I mean, that's just the math here in Psalm 40. As long as we have polite, quaint, acceptable sins... God's blessing to save us will always be lame. But when we finally grapple with the reality, God saves sinners like us out of a miry bog, now his blessing is better than anything else there is. Okay, that was bonus. Here we go. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 17. This is news worth sharing because of how great God is. News worth sharing because of how much God blesses but here in verses 6 through 17, we're going to see this, God is, this is news worth sharing because of how great God is. There's a television show, I've only seen a few episodes, but in, um, not much of them. Uh, it's called The Antiques Roadshow. Anybody ever heard of this television show? So what happens is a person brings in a painting they found in the attic that Uncle Cletus left in the attic, and so they hang it up, Right? And they say, look, Uncle Cletus left me this painting. I don't know what it is. And so then they have an expert on the painting. Are you familiar with the show? I'm going to tell you that anyway. So the person then looks at this painting, and they start to pay attention to things that this guy never noticed. He said, look at this. uh, Look at the nature of the canvas that was painted on this. He tells us it's from a particular date. And then they turn the picture over, and look at this little symbol on the back. Says it uh, It was hung in this particular gallery. And look at this little signature on the back. And they look at all these little details this person's never seen before. All they saw was what looked like a paint-by-number picture. You know, it's like, I don't know. I don't know, Uncle Cletus. I didn't know he was into this sort of thing. And the person says, when you look at all these details that you weren't paying attention to, well, this painting is worth $50,000. Holy cow, and the person is shocked. They're like, wow, I almost threw this thing away. I didn't think this thing should even be hanging on the wall of a Motel 6. This thing is, this is a terrible painting. Well, now it's worth $50,000. Well, this is a beautiful painting. Everything's changed. All of a sudden, this is a great painting. I love this painting. So what happens is the value is determined because they see the reality of what's in front of them that they haven't seen before. And what Psalm 46 through 17 is going to show us, God's power, God's love, God's righteousness, his mercy, his faithfulness, all of these things, these are details that we don't pay attention to. We become overly used to them. All of these things about God should motivate us to worship. Because of the way in God shows his faithfulness and mercy to us. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. You have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the books it is written of me, excuse me, I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. What does God want from his people, David said. Does God want sacrifice and offering? Not merely sacrifice and offering, no. He says, look, I have not delighted in sacrifice and offering. I have been delighted in burnt offering. What does, what does God want from his people? He says it right there in verse 8. David says, I delight to do your will, God. Your law is in my heart. What God wants from his people is hearts that are changed. A transformation that begins on the inside where we have a desire for God a genuine desire for God a person who has a genuine heartfelt love for God has no need for empty ceremony empty ritual empty religion and that's what David is saying I don't need empty ceremony where you just show up and burn an animal or i make an offering he's saying in my heart I have a desire for who God is and what he is doing and what he is like David is trying to show us something here as this expert at the Antique Roadshow. He's showing us something of God, and he's saying, God is not someone who's created a list of ceremonies and rituals you need to do. God is someone that is worth pursuing. Hebrews chapter 10. You might want to turn there in your copy of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10. Really, really interesting passage as it touches on Psalm 40 beginning in verse 6. I'm going to read quite a bit of this. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1, since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, the law can never, listen, the law can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Your Bible says the law cannot do what? Make perfect. Can the law make perfect? No. How can you be made perfect? Through the law? No. I'm trying to say it a different way so you'll get it. Can't do it. How do we know that? Verse 2 of Hebrews 10. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The law cannot take away sin. How do you know? Because they sacrificed again. If the law could take away sin, what would you do? You'd be done. You'd be cleansed. But you had to come back next year. Why? Because it didn't work. It didn't work. The the law has no power to cleanse the sinner from their sin. That's why the offering had to be offered year after year after year. So he picks this up. This is where he references Psalm 40. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. This is Psalm 40, verse 6, remember. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, this is verse 8 of Hebrews 10, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these that are offered according to the law, he added, I have come to do your will. He does away with a first, that is the law, to establish the second. That is the covenant that is by faith in Christ alone. So look again at uh, verse 6 and 7 of Hebrews 10 says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and burnt offerings you have not desired. Here's what's interesting about this passage. He's quoting from Psalm 40, right? When did he say this? He didn't. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four gospels, he never quoted. He never quoted Psalm 40. Okay, you're Googling. Go ahead. We have to understand the language that's being used here. When did Christ say this? Christ said this in conversation with the Father in eternity past. So this is Christ the Son, before he comes as a man, talking to his Father, quoting from the psalm, Psalm 40, because David spoke it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but who's really saying it? Jesus is saying it. And he's saying to the Father, before he comes as a man, before he comes in his humiliation, Father, you don't want this law thing, we know that. That's supposed to tell people something better is coming. A body you have given me. A body you have given me. Verse 7 Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. When else, did, when, when else did he say that? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. As it is written of me, in the scroll. So even though David is writing Psalm 40 by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what's really being done here, it's the son communicating to the father saying, "I will bring redemption, not by another bull offering, another offering, another goat, another dove, not another wave offering or whatever it might be. Instead, I am going to offer my own body as a sacrifice." That's what I'm going to do. The son says to the father, Verse 9 of Hebrews 10, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order, that is the law, to establish the second, that is a new covenant in his blood. Verse 10 of Hebrews 10, and by that will, that is Christ's will to save us by his own sacrifice, we have been sanctified. What does sanctified mean? Made holy. We have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. So this is what the psalmist, he's trying to get us to grapple with what God is like. It's the son, pre-incarnation, in eternity past, talking to the father saying, essentially, put me in coach, I got this. I got this. Not my will, but yours be done. I'm gonna get in there and I'm going to get this done once for all. How great is our God? He's been planning this the whole time. This has always been the plan, to save sinners. And some of us, stuck in our miry bog, hear that news and we say, this is really good news. And others of us say, great, you saved me 30 cents. Because we missed it. How big a deal it is. What he saved us from and how he saved us. Let's keep going. Psalm chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. I want to start over. I'm kidding. Verse 9. 9, 10, 11, and 12. Let me read it. will ever preserve me for evils have encompassed me beyond number my iniquities have overtaken me and i cannot see they are more than the hairs of my head my heart fails me god's salvation is worth sharing that whether we whether we understand that or not but god's salvation is so incredible for us each of us as individuals it's worth sharing i just want to point out one little phrase in verse 11 As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. What kind of mercy? This is King David, Antiques Roadshow, showing us God, some little detail you never paid attention to till this very moment. What kind of mercy does God have? What does it say? Unrestrained mercy. Unrestrained mercy. So, you take your kid to the pizza, bowling alley, arcade, extravaganza. I don't know if that's a place, but every kid thinks it ought to be. (laughs) In these places nowadays, you get the little fun card. The fun card is also known as my bank account is about to be empty card. If you're like me, you put 10 or 15 bucks on that card, right? Some of you are saying that's not enough. Some of you are going, wow, 15 bucks, all right? Put that, and then you hand that card to the kid, and you say, there you go. That's what you got. That's what you got. Right? Isn't that what you do? How many of you, as parents, would take out your visa and just hand it to your kid? None. None. How much will that kid spend? All the money. All of it. See, this is why we don't understand God at all. We just cannot get it. We don't, because what kind of, what does He do? He hands us the mercy card. He just hands it to us. And I I swear, I know it. Some of you today, no, he would never, no, he wouldn't. Then you gotta do something with your Bible up in there. You gotta scratch out a word. As for you, O Lord, you will not, what? Restrain your mercy. If he only gives you a certain amount of mercy, by definition, it is not mercy. He gives you how much? Unrestrained. But what if you sin on purpose and take advantage of his mercy? See, that's what you're arguing with me, so I'm trying to think of how you're arguing. All of your sin is on purpose. Stop trying to tell me some of it's not. No, I I stumbled into sin. Knock it out. Nobody buys it. Nobody. Nobody buys it. I mean, we're going to be polite and we're going to go, oh, that's hard for you. And inside we're going, you are so terrible. Luckily, I'm not like this sinner. That's what we do in our hearts. Unrestrained mercy. We have been convinced somewhere along the line, mostly by Satan, but also by the church. I'm trying to be polite. That the only kind of grace Christians get is grace they deserve. Because they appreciate it and they try not to sin very much. That is not grace. That is not mercy. We are convinced that if we actually recognize God's grace and mercy are unrestrained, we are convinced that people will sin and not stop. That's what we think will happen. We're we're convinced of it. It will not happen. The reason people keep sinning is because they think God isn't gracious. When you grapple, With the reality of God's mercy being unrestrained, you will do what? What did the woman do who was a sinner? What did she do when she realized his mercy was unrestrained? What'd she do? Did she go back out and sin more? What'd she do? She worshiped. That's what happens. But we're convinced if we tell people his mercy is unrestrained, they're going to fly out and sin their socks off. That's not what they do. What does the woman do? She worshiped. What does David do? He worships. That's the response. This is news worth sharing. God's mercy is unrestrained mercy. Once you experience God's unrestrained mercy, which means you recognize your sin is also unrestrained, you're going to tell others. You're going to say, wait a minute. Wait, this is not what I thought it was. This is incredible. God loves sinners like me, and that means he can love someone like you. That's what happens there. Okay, verses 13 through 17. About a quarter of this sermon was in my notes. Excuse me, great is the Lord. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and I am needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. The world is broken. Walking with God by faith is still a daily experience of joy in salvation. And we do this while we walk in a world of our own brokenness and the brokenness in the world around us along with troubles. Look at what he says. Rejoice those of you who love what? God's rules. No. Those who love what? God's salvation, he says in verse 16. How does David describe himself in relationship with God in verse 17? As for uh, as for me I am poor and needy. And some of us we want our spiritual life to get to the point where we're no longer poor and needy but um, spoiler alert the closer you get to God the more you'll recognize you are poor and needy. That's the tr- that's the journey of the Christian life. The closer we get to him the more we recognize we need him. That's a that's a sign of of maturity. News worth sharing. How much does God bless He blesses us by saving us from our own sin. Drawing us up out of the miry bog. News worth sharing. How great is God? His mercy, his mercy is unrestrained. It never ends. You can never get to the end of it. A couple of things, we'll close with this. A thermometer tells us the temperature, correct? Okay, if we can't agree on that, we got problems. Our worship tells us our gratefulness. Thermometer tells us what the temperature is outside. Our worship tells us our gratefulness. That's that Pharisee and that woman. This isn't just about singing loud or raising your hands, although it's not less than that. It's not just about love, service, or forgiveness. The question is, when we, in the quietness of our own hearts and minds, thinking of our Lord, do we recognize... How much He has done for us with unrestrained mercy to save us. Our, our hearts moved with gratitude. There's two things we have to do to do that. Number one is recognize our sin is much worse than we're willing to admit, and His mercy is much greater than we thought. We're afraid if we admit how bad it really is in our hearts that we're going to be lost. But actually, when we're willing to grapple with the reality of what's going on in our life, we discover His mercy anew, and it's unrestrained. Uh, last thing. I'll close with this one. I'm trying to remember what I meant when I wrote this. Um, let me put it this way: God desires a relationship with you that is defined by worship born out of gratefulness. Don't be confused when you say this. I don't want to be misunderstood, but I probably will. But here we go. He is not. He is not primarily motivated for a relationship with you that's based on your devotedness. Does God want us devoted? Of course he does. But what's the basis for our relationship? Unrestrained mercy which moves us to gratefulness. And what we want to do is have a relationship with God that's based on how awesome we are. Our devotedness. And so we establish a criteria for which God and I have a good relationship because I... I read my Bible a certain amount of times during the week or I pray or I give away money or I spend time at church or I volunteer in the community, whatever it might be. So I create a structure by which I can feel that God and I are cool. God is not interested in that kind of relationship. Psalm 40, Luke chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us God wants a relationship with us that's defined by his unrestrained mercy which moves us to unrestrained gratefulness. And that gratefulness is expressed through worship. That God brings glory. That, God, that, that kind of relationship brings spiritual life and blessing to you. And it moves you in God's family to be a, a catalyst, to allow others to be willing to talk about what's going on in their own life. This catches fire when a few people in a, in a body of believers recognize that God's mercy is unrestrained, so I don't have to pretend I'm something I'm not. And all of a sudden you end up with a, a community of believers that aren't faking it. Because we don't have to be awesome to be together. Jesus can be. And his mercy is what defines our relationship with him. And with others. Psalm 40. There's news worth sharing because of how much God blesses. And because of how great our God is. Let's seek the Lord in prayer just for a few moments. Before we close in a song. God we thank you God for your mercy. And we need to recognize in these moments Lord. That as connoisseurs of your goodness we have a poor palate there are so many things in our life that we find much more satisfying than relationship with you and lord really that's the result of us thinking our relationship with you has to be earned god my prayer is as we have thought about psalm 40 that you would open our eyes to what you have saved us from And the reality of your nature that you have unrestrained mercy for those who come to you by faith. God, I pray for those of us in this room in this moment who are raised in the church and somehow along the way we picked up a notion that we need to earn your favor through good and right behavior. And God, I would pray in these moments you would melt our hearts to see that we have your favor because of Christ's behavior. And because of your unrestrained mercy our lives can be devoted to you as an act of worship not as an effort to make you happy. God I pray that you would give us a willingness as a body of believers to be transparent especially in those relationships where we have built uh, trust and friendship that we would be willing to share those areas where we struggle and we can do so in the safety of knowing that your mercy is unrestrained. Lord, as believers, I pray that you would give us strength when we hear of others who have struggled with sin instead of a sense of pride or arrogance and said, God, we would share in the gratitude that your mercy is unrestrained, especially for those who blow it. But God, in this moment, also, I'd pray for those of us who don't know Jesus. That somehow we got fooled into thinking that to get to heaven, we have to be a certain way. But the reality is we get to heaven because Jesus is a certain way. And we trust him to forgive us of our sins and give us righteousness. God, we thank you for Jesus. We can't wait till he comes, but till he does, Lord, would you give us the strength to endure to the very end. In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song.